Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. The Safe Haven Podcast is a space for you to be real, raw, emotional, vulnerable, hilarious, and or completely carefree. This podcast offers a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life in a judgment-free zone. Join me and my powerful guests as we dive into a variety of conversations and topics. Listen from where you are, as you are. Think, laugh, and cry along with us, whether you're in your car, in the kitchen, chasing your kids, running your business, caregiving for someone that you love, getting a mani-pedi while you're in the hospital, a treatment center, sitting on the deck, on the dock, or out for a run. These weekly stories and messages will hit you right in the heart, fill up your cup, and recharge your spirits. Joining me today is Courtney Ecclestone. I almost said Courtney Gerber, <laughs> but it was Courtney Gerber. It is now Courtney Ecclestone. And Courtney is here to share with us her journey with epilepsy. I'm so happy that you're here. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So if you would like to start, um, if you want to give us a bit of a, a timeline, you know, when did, when did this start? So you were epileptic for 10-ish years. Do you want to give yeah. us a bit of a start on how that actually came about? Yeah, so it started uh, 1999 was the first year I had a seizure. Um, I think it started, I had some weird episodes where I would be like, oh, my hand's numb, how bizarre, and kind of breeze past. <laughs> and then um, it was my first year of high school. We were living in Fernie, BC, and uh, and I was in gym class, and I was pulling down... Um, I was on a weight machine. I was doing, what is this, like a... Like lats? Like lats. Yeah. <laughs> Not a gym person, obviously. <laughs> um, so I I had, I went into a grand mall seizure and I let go of the handle and it crashed down. The weights crashed down and I went into convulsions. Um, I woke up on the floor and they had called an ambulance and loaded me in. My my dad's cousin at the time, um, his his cousin was a doctor in Fernie, actually, which was great because uh, she was right away there um, mm-hmm. to answer questions and calm my parents down and everything. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was my first seizure. After that, it moved pretty quickly into like testing, EEGs, MRIs, um, trying to figure out what was causing them. Uh, there was a little bit of speculation. It went through... Um, like a cyst. They thought I had a cyst. And basically at that time, it was just about controlling it or managing it as best we could through medication. Mm -hmm. And I went through a couple different ones before they found one that worked. And even when I say worked, it (laughs) wasn't uh, 100% successful, Mm -hmm. which most anti-seizure medications are not. Um, There's been a lot of development since that time, I guess, in the field. But at the time I was on, Tegretol was my basic one that I stayed on for most of the time I Mm -hmm. had seizures. Can you go back and can you just explain the difference between um, a grand mal? Yes, and a petite. Petite mal, yeah. Um, Yeah, so I would have both. Um, Some people, there's so many different types of seizures if I got into it. Uh, I met so many people while I was in the epilepsy unit and Mm -hmm. the types of seizures that are out there. I mean, the brain is such a a mysterious thing. (laughs) Um, It can cause so many different reactions in people. And so um, there's anything from like, you just blank out and stare at the wall Mm -hmm. for a couple minutes and then come back to yourself. That's one type of seizure. 
I met a woman, sorry, I'm, I met a woman who went into seizures for a month at a time. What? When I was, yeah, when I was in the epilepsy unit, she would be able to function. It wasn't like, it was kind of like she was in a, a daze and she, her eyes would be kind of glassy, um, but she could function. Motor function was totally normal. She was just kind of like dazed, zoned out. I guess. And would still go through regular sleep patterns Go and through, too? yeah. Seem, I think so, yeah, from what I remember. Um, and then she would wake up out of it and not remember the month before. Um, wow. Yeah, totally bizarre. And, and I wonder how frequent those were. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. My mom talked to her more because I was, when I was in the unit, I was not really mm-hmm. <laughs> talking a lot. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then the nurse told me about one woman. This will make you laugh, but... It's funny, but then it's not really funny when you think about it. This woman, her seizures were orgasms. So she would just like have a spontaneous orgasm. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like on the bus or (laughs) uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That was her seizure. So they're they're so totally varied. You can't can't really put a label on them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mine... Uh, would always start in my right hand, mm-hmm. uh, which we found out later was because my tumor that I had, a benign tumor, uh, was beside my right hand function in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would start in my right hand and sometimes it would stay there and I could calm myself down um, and it would dissipate. Uh, and that would be a petite mall. And then a grand mall would be, it would start in my right hand and I would get really anxious and uh, my breathing would become very labored and it travel up my right arm, and then I would just go unconscious and go into convulsions, which lasted usually, like, I think it was like a one-minute kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I would wake up, and as I was telling you earlier, it start when I started having them, I would wake up instantly and be able to sit up and function. Mm-hmm. Um, as if it hadn't happened, almost? You just kind of, I, like, go I, right back into what you were doing? Uh, no, no, no. I would remember mm-hmm. that I went into the seizure. I never yeah. forgot about my seizures. Mm-hmm. But as time progressed, I would have a longer recovery time after mm-hmm. a seizure. So I would be laying down and I, my eyes would be open. I would be aware of everything going around, on around me. But I would not be able to speak or move for, I, I think it was like five to ten minutes and sometimes if people didn't know what was going on, they thought something very serious was wrong with me. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I wouldn't respond to their questions, basically. I'd be yeah. looking at them, but not responding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyways, back to <laughs> the timeline. Yeah. Um, so I went to a lot of different neurologists around the Fernie area. I think like Cranbrook, um, Lethbridge. Um, and then we went up to Calgary um, a couple of times. And um, I got a lot of EEGs, which if you don't know what that is, it's like a brain scan. They put wires on your head, glue them to your head, and read your brain activity. And I had quite a few of those, some MRIs, and they finally um, found a medication that kind of worked for me. I, the frequency of my seizures, I would say, would last, it would, one time I had four in a day, that was the most, Mm -hmm. and I was hospitalized after that happened. Um, it was pretty bad. Um, How old were you when that happened? <laughs> let me consult this. Yeah. Um, uh, when was that? Oh, that was 2000. So it was the year after my seizures started. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, had four in one day. Four grand malls in one day. But 
they would go anywhere from having like two in a week to like one every three months. Um, so it was very sporadic. Um, and what brought them on or is that? Yeah. So triggers were, uh, being tired definitely was the major one. And then being stressed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that triggered, triggered them for me, um, for them starting, I guess, was, uh, was my parent. There was a bunch of things happening in my life at the same time. Um, my parents got divorced, um, which affected me big time. Mm-hmm. My, uh, I had just gotten my period the year before mm-hmm. started and we had moved, we'd moved out to BC. So I was, I mean, we had been out there for a couple of years, but still like dealing with all the changes mm-hmm. and, um, uprooting from here and going out there was a big thing. And it was my first year of high school because high school starts in grade eight out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and my braces. Yes. I got braces, which, um, doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, everybody gets braces around that age yeah. usually. Um, but it does, I think in addition to all of the other things piling up, um, the constriction from it and having, I had, um, one of those appliances in the top of your mouth that you turn and it makes your oh, jaw your wider. Palate, you yeah. Open, yeah. Yeah. Crank open with a crank. Yeah. Literally a crank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was putting a lot of pressure on my head, and I think all of those things kind of snowballed in, I, yeah, the seizure was the, the release, basically, mm. of all that stress. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I missed a lot of school that first year of high school. We did a lot of trips to the doctor and different specialists trying to figure things out, and then uh, we moved back. We moved back the next year. I think it was after I finished school, we moved back mm-hmm. um, because I started grade nine in Halliburton, which was super weird yeah. <laughs> because there was like all these people I had gone to elementary school with and hadn't seen in so long. <laughs> yeah. Like we moved out there when I was in grade six, halfway through grade six. So Ted, my husband, uh, he was in my grade six class actually <laughs> when, when we left. <laughs> so funny when we look at, back at it. But, uh, yeah, so I came back, started high school and, um, went through high school with epilepsy. I had a couple seizures in high school, like at the school, um, basically just had to make sure that I told my friends what was going on mm-hmm. so that they could be ready. My biggest, uh, my biggest ally in high school was Erin, definitely Erin Birch. She, she was like the, what should I call her? She was like my protector, basically, yeah, like my security guard. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if I ever, and she was in a lot of my classes, which was a huge help now that I look back on it, because anytime, even if I was having a petite mall, anytime I started to go into one, she would right away, like, be like, okay, let's get out of here. So she would make me leave my desk, go into the hall, and help me breathe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she would just be like, okay, calm down. And most most of the time, I would just have a petite mall. It wouldn't escalate into anything. But a couple times it did, and she was there for both times that I... Well, the one I didn't remember, but my husband reminded me, but... Yeah. She was the one who was informing the teachers what to do and to stay calm and that I was okay. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah. 
super important. She was a superstar, basically. (laughs) Important to have someone like, like you say, your ally. Yeah. Going through something like that. Someone who can stay calm in those situations because I have seen a person have a seizure since then and it is scary as hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like you, you feel so helpless. You can't do anything. I always say like, it must've been scarier for other people than it was for Mm -hmm. me (laughs) because it, it's terrifying to watch. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So moving forward, I went to university, uh, in London at Western. Mm-hmm. Aaron was there again. Yes. Aaron. <laughs> we were, uh, in separate, uh, programs though. Um, and I didn't have that hard of a time in university. Actually, I, I, uh, I did miss out on certain things. Um, I had to be very conscious of how much sleep I got. Um, so I couldn't, I mean, I was at Western, it's the party school. It's got mm-hmm. a reputation yeah. for sure. Um, and I did have a good time, but I, I definitely had to be mindful of how much sleep I was getting. And I had to learn to say no sometimes mm-hmm. um, if friends wanted to go out. And I was just like, you know what, my body can't handle it. So I had to learn very quickly how to read <laughs> where my energy levels were at and that sort of thing. And then I graduated in 2009. (laughs) (laughs) I started dating Ted uh, in 2008, I believe. You can definitely tell us that story. That's a fun one. No, it was 2009. Sorry, it was 2009. We started dating. Um, Yeah, so Ted and I have known each other since kindergarten. And and, uh, we didn't date at all through high school. Um, I had a little bit of a crush on him in high school, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like the class clown, mm-hmm. kind of. He was kind of like you, actually. He was friends with everyone. Yeah. He didn't really have a specific set of friends. He yeah. kind of traveled around. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, super easygoing. Anyway, so Aaron and I were hanging out. We were back for the summer, I think, from university. And... Uh, yeah, we, we went to Craig Crow's birthday party. Actually, Ted called Aaron and told us to come to Craig Crow's birthday party. <laughs> um, because, yeah, they were bored. Um, so we went and uh, we hung out and we ended up staying up that entire night talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was super, like, out of the blue. Yeah. <laughs> Very out of the blue. Um and, uh, and then I, and then he asked me out and I was like, you know what? Why? 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 I don't, I'm very, I think very logically sometimes to my de- own detriment. Um, I'm like, you know, we've known each other since we were five years old and we've never, like, there's never been anything here. So yeah. why would we start dating now? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And so Ted is super stubborn. If any of you know him, uh, he's really stubborn. Um, so he, t- he says, you know, he, if you're going to break up with me before we've even started dating, then you at least owe me like a dinner to tell me to my face <laughs> <laughs> that, that you don't want to date me. Um, so I went for dinner with him and yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> so awesome. I was hooked. You were hooked. That's what he said. He said, I roped her in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he thinks he performed, like, this miracle. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and he's been pretty amazing. He's stuck my, by me through 
all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I was at my worst, which apparently when I was in the hospital, I was pretty horrible. Very needy and very smelly. Very smelly, (laughs) yes. We'll get to that. Um, Yeah, so back to the timeline. In 2010, uh, it was right after I I graduated university in 2009. Mm -hmm. I was living at home for a year, um, trying to figure out what I want to do next. And uh, my dad um, called me up and he said, oh, there's this, you know, Dr. Brown... um, he used to, he had a cottage on the lake where we grew up at Little Hawk Resort. And he's a neurologist. And so I guess my dad was working on the lake because my dad does construction. Um, and he had run into Dr. Brown and he, he said he was asking about me. And uh, so he mentioned the epilepsy clinic at London University Hospital. And uh, he said, if you want to talk to him, uh, he might be able to get you in there if you're interested. So I went to talk to him and he put me on the waiting list. Um, at the time, it was quite busy. <laughs> there was quite a long waiting list to get in there. Um, and it was hard to get in. I don't know if that's changed because I've given that name, the the name of the epilepsy clinic to a couple people that I know with epilepsy. And both of them have gone there since then. Anyways, they do amazing work there. Uh University Hospital in London is a teaching hospital, which I found was really cool. All through my surgeries, there was like a lot of people there watching and yeah. observing. Um, but it's 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 an amazing place. Anyway, so I put myself on the waiting list. I got the call in November 2010, and I went down to meet with the neurologist who is, I think, the head of the program there or one of the people in the program. <laughs> He was super dour, as all neurologists seem to be. <laughs> um, facts. No, no sense yeah. of empathy. Yeah. yeah, just the facts. Just the facts. And uh, so he he talked me through it, and I decided that I wanted to be put on the testing list for the unit. And then I got the call in January um, of two thousand eleven. January two thousand eleven. Um, and basically how the epilepsy unit works, it's kind of nerve wracking because they call you and you basically have a day to get your affairs in order and get in there. And we were, at that time, I was living in Toronto with Ted and... You're 24-ish at this time. Yeah, yeah. So I was living in Toronto with Ted and, um, they called me up and I was working full time. Um, my work was super supportive. (laughs) They were amazing. And so I went into the epilepsy unit, and there's no guarantee how long you're going to be in there either. So I was in there for, I think it was about five days, uh, all said and done. And so they start out, it's it's a unit with six beds. So there's six uh, patients in total in the unit, and the nurses are in there full-time monitoring everyone. Uh, everybody's in different stages usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and so many different types of epilepsy. It's mind-boggling. So they hook you up to a live EEG. So they put the wires on your head and they're attached to this little pack that's monitoring you. Um, And you can walk around with it um, and everybody can stare at the wires growing out of your head. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so that lasts however long they need to get a reading. So you have to have a seizure while you're hooked up to this thing. For it to test and read it. Yeah. Right. So it took me a while till I had one. 
I remember that. I think it was a few days. Um, and then I finally had like a big one. And they told me that the reading wasn't good enough, uh, that they needed to go deeper to get a more clear reading, to deduce anything. Um, so they asked if I was interested in being put back on the list um, for subdurals, which basically means brain surgery. To put a subdural in, it's like an EEG, uh, but they put them directly on your brain, so they have to open you up to get them in there. Mm-hmm. So that, I put got put on that list, and then in the fall of that year, it was September, they called me, and I was at work. I remember this clear as a bell because I was freaking out mm-hmm. um they called me I was at work I I went into a small little office off to the side and they were like okay uh you have till tomorrow morning to get in here to put in the subdurals is that going to be okay with you <laughs> and I was like what yeah. <laughs> it was kind of one of those moments where I was hyperventilating I was crying I was just bawling and it's not even that I was sad about it or uh, it's just scary and it scary and a time and the, the time t- the time crunch is is yeah. a lot it's o- very overwhelming and it's such a big thing getting your head cut open so I called my mom and uh she's like I'll I'll be there we can we can take you down um everybody everybody was super supportive um so I said okay <laughs> mm-hmm. so off I went and um I met my neurosurgeon uh, when I got there, Dr. McDougal, who we nicknamed McDreamy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> because he was super young, actually, and so like laid back and carefree and polar opposite to the neurologists that I met. Mm-hmm. Um, he had such a good sense of humor, and it just made everything, my whole time there was so much easier because of him. Mm-hmm. Well, you said the neurologist had lacked that empathy, whereas yes. he was full of it. Yeah, he was, he, and it wasn't even empathy, it was, it's more like his sense of humor and his lightheartedness, mm-hmm. and he was confident, like he always believed that, you know, this is going to go well, and this is, no worries, <laughs> no worries. super important when you're cutting your head yeah. open. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so anyway... I uh, I was in there in September. They put in the first round of subdurals. Um, it took, I think, I can't remember exactly how long, but it took a while before I had a seizure. Um, they ended up having to take me off of my medication, um, and then I had a bunch in a row. And Ted said to me later, he was like, I couldn't handle it because you were just, like, nonstop having seizures. And I was like, can we please... <laughs> put her back on her meds or do something about this like he said it was very painful to watch um yeah so I they finally got a reading after I had all these uh episodes and um they said they're not deep enough we're not getting a clear enough reading so we're gonna have to put more subdurals in and just for like a mental image of what this (laughs) looks like um so basically they open up your head they put these wires in directly onto your brain and then they wrap a gauze turban around your head when these wires are like coming out of the top <laughs> sprouting out of your turban mm-hmm. and you're walking around like that and then well they're not all really collected almost like a long skinny y- ponytail yeah, yeah 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 up to a machine that's reading constantly and I shouldn't say you're walking around because I was on a lot of painkillers and the first uh, set of subdurals they wrapped the 
the gauze turban too tight and I had a really bad headache. I was super nauseous, a super demanding. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to basically take a shower or anything, so I stunk apparently. I had really bad breath and I and Ted was kissing me despite all of this. Um, it, was, it was just... He's in it to win it. I don't really remember all this. I was really groggy. So this mm-hmm. part of the story, I, I, it's very foggy to me. I have like little snippets that I remember, like playing cards or doing puzzles or having certain people come to visit. I remember that, but yeah, mostly very foggy. I think too that even when your mom was showing us those photos, I think that maybe those would kind of help you kind of piece together things. Or yeah. Like, oh yeah, that's oh, happened. Or yeah, when she showed me those afterwards, them. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it was so yeah. bizarre to me. Um, yeah, yeah, really weird. I there was, I can't remember when this happened, but my mom still tells this story. It's kind of funny. Um, so. I was allowed to take a shower at one point. I don't know if this was after my major surgery. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I was allowed to take a shower, but I was still kind of like groggy on painkillers. And (laughs) my mom came in to help. My legs were super hairy, obviously, because I hadn't been able to shave my legs. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, we're shaving my legs. My mom's like, it's not important. I was like, nope. We're shaving my legs and we didn't have a razor but they had disposable ones at the nurse's station or whatever um so she's like well let me do it then <laughs> so, <laughs> so she starts shaving my legs and for some reason i got mad at her and i was like no let me do it and i grabbed it away from her i came out my legs were just like butchered like i had cut oh, them no. all over the place <laughs> And the two blade disposables aren't the best anyway. <laughs> I just did a hack job. Um, yeah, my mom was, still tells that story because she's like, it was the funniest thing because you were like so, so determined to do it yourself mm-hmm. and you were just making a mess of it, but you wouldn't let me touch it. So. No, she had to step uh, back. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I had the second round of subdurals put mm-hmm. in. They finally got a good reading. Um, and they were like, yep, you're a candidate for surgery. Um, they explained all the risks, um, which the biggest risk was, uh, my right hand function, uh, impairing it, um, because it was so close. The, the tumor, which they called a D-net tumor, uh, was something that I was born with. Um, it was benign, um, and it wasn't growing, uh, like getting bigger or anything, but, uh, it was right beside my right hand function. So they they, uh, that was their only big concern. I mean, there's lots of concerns when you're having brain surgery. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of risks, but, uh, I, I decided I wanted to do this. Um, the main reason I wanted to do the surgery was the medication. I just wanted to be off of that medication. Yeah. I hated it. Um, and can you talk about the side effects of that? You know, as to yeah. why you actually really wanted to get off of those? Yeah, so the biggest side effects with from the medication were just being tired all the time. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, my mom was saying it's used as an antidepressant as well. So it kind of just like slows you down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was super tired all the time, no energy. And then the other thing was I was gaining weight from it, um, and I would exercise or do whatever. It didn't make a difference. So yeah, and and also I, 
I wanted to have kids and I was worried about the long-term impact that it would have on my mm-hmm. body, on my organs. Um, something that strong usually leaves a mark. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I had opted for the surgery. So the surgery happened on October 21st, 2011. That was the craziest day. <laughs> it was. Uh, it reminds me of an episode from Grey's Anatomy. I was awake for the whole surgery. Um, <laughs> I got, so I remember getting wheeled into the OR and McDreamy um, was like introducing me to the whole team. There was so many doctors in there. Mm-hmm. The best was the anesthesiologist, super hot, um, <laughs> stand, sitting like right across from me. Yeah. So I was kind of, I was curled on my, on my side on the table because the part that they had to open up was on the side of my head more like top side um so I was curled on my side and uh I couldn't feel anything like they made me numb all over but obviously um but I was awake and alert and able to talk um and the reason they do that is because they have to measure your responses while they're working right Um, so the anesthesiologist was in charge of talking to me. Um, so he was sitting across from me, just asking me questions like, uh, Courtney, can you feel your mouth? Can you feel your left hand? Can, can you, uh, talk? Can you, whatever. And I remember McDreamy, when we first got in there, I was super anxious Mm -hmm. and (laughs) he was like, what kind of music do you like? I said, country. So he started singing. He wasn't a very good singer. Uh, he started singing Five O'Clock Somewhere, <laughs> like really loudly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the OR. Um, yeah, he was amazing. Uh, yeah, so the whole time I remember, I remember with a detached sort of fascination, uh, I could see the ground under the table and I could see my blood dripping mm-hmm. like on the ground and I was like oh that's my blood yeah. <laughs> I was like totally like out of body kind of experience like I had calmed right down that might have been from the anesthetics I'm not yeah. sure if that calms you I'm I don't know but yeah I was super calm the whole time <laughs> and more of just like a, an awareness is a yeah oh, okay, yeah that's what it is it didn't frighten you no no nothing frightened me at that I, I don't know at first when I went in I was nervous and then after they um after they started I was just like super calm um which might have been something that they gave me I don't mm. I'm not sure um I never really thought about it <laughs> at the time I was just like oh this is happening yeah um yeah so I remember having to like open and close my mouth and do certain things talk and uh, that sort of thing during it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was points when I like couldn't feel my left hand. So they were like, Oh, a little bit more this way. Right. Yeah. Really bizarre. I rem- remember getting wheeled into recovery and my parents came in and I was just like super chatty. Uh, I was like, blah, 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 blah. like this is happening. This is, ha- this happened. And he sang to me and blah, 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 blah. Like I was just like going <laughs> on and on. And they were like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and then I got wheeled to, uh, what's it called, the oh, CCU unit, mm-hmm. which was a nightmare. I hated it. <laughs> it was uh, one of, yeah, the worst nights of my life. The adrenaline started to wear off <laughs> mm-hmm. from the surgery. 
Um, and I was in the critical care unit with all the patients who have very serious shit going on. Um, I felt like I didn't even need to be there. Like I was like, well, it's just brain surgery. Like (laughs) discounting it when you're listening to everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of wailing, uh, groaning. Mm. I did not sleep that night. No. At all. I just, yeah, was awake listening to these poor people suffering and, I was like, I can never work in a hospital. No. <laughs> I don't know how nurses do it, I or doctors, but nurses mostly. I just don't know how they. It's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, With their patients too. Uh, yeah, the nurses yeah. in the epilepsy unit were so unbelievable. They were yeah so attentive mm-hmm. and just amazing women. <laughs> and I actually went back to visit after oh, I had my lovely. surgery. I went back to visit them a couple times. Um, I brought them a picture from our wedding because they had a pit, they had a wall there, a like bulletin board with, uh, pictures of people who had been through the unit and have been seizure free since having surgery or mm-hmm. being switched medications or whatever. So, well, yeah, and maybe just jump back on the timeline a bit. So your tumor was, was removed in, at that surgery in October, 2011. Yeah. But now Teddy... Yes. Your now husband (laughs) had actually proposed to you in July of that year. July. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He proposed in July before I went in to get my subdurals. And we were planning on uh, getting married in August 2012. So when they called, (laughs) I was like, wow, this is going to be really close to my wedding. Um, So that was another decision factor. And I think a lot of people thought it would be a bigger decision factor for me because they were like, you won't have any hair for your wedding. That was the first thing people thought of. And I was like, what does that matter? <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. It's a choice to spend the rest of your life with someone. It yeah. doesn't matter if you have hair or not. Uh, for sure. so funny. But I guess, I guess really that would have been, you know, it, people that are completely removed from it. That yeah. When you think of a, a blushing bride yeah, and yeah. their hair and how, how much money. Hey, you didn't have to worry about spending money on your hair. Yeah. You know? Good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I could see that as being someone's first kind of like, oh, well, what about this? It just made me laugh that yeah. that was people's first concern was, you won't have any hair for the wedding. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So we got engaged. Ted was with me through it all. Actually, my whole family was super supportive. Um, my parents are both remarried. My dad wasn't remarried at that time, but he was with Irene, who he's married to now. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was there. It. I was in the the unit or in the hospital for about a month mm-hmm. and people were there through through it all which boggled my mind I couldn't figure out how everybody got off work for that whole amount of time I mean Ted uh, had to go back for one week while I was in there and work in Toronto and then came back but his work was super supportive as well and uh, yeah everybody was around whether they filtered in and out and rotated uh, or my mom was there pretty much through everything mm-hmm. um yeah it was incredible yeah. even my um my oma and opa came to visit me while I was in there and my oma hates hospitals and anything to do with blood yeah. <laughs> so um yeah she had to suck up to get in there I don't know how she had the guts to to walk in there but yeah so so yeah so after my um my tumor was removed I had a pick line mm-hmm which if you don't know what that is, it's um it's basically like IV antibiotics, like an IV line, but they insert it into your, the main vein, main artery, 
vein. Uh, it goes in by your elbow, like the crease in your elbow, and travels up towards your heart to one of your bigger veins up there. And uh, it's just like constant antibiotics flowing through your bloodstream. Um, so where is it coming from? So we had this little pack that they hooked me up with, like a little purse that I had to carry around with me. Um, And uh, there's these little baggies, same baggies you get in an IV drip. Right. Um, But they hook up to the machine and they cycle through. So I had to do one in the morning and one in the afternoon, I think. At home? At home, yeah. Uh, So they sent me back to Toronto and hooked me up with uh, the home care nurses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And they came and would change the bag. Uh, Finally, after like, it wasn't very long, Ted figured it out pretty fast. And they were like, as long as you're comfortable doing this, you can go ahead and run with it. Because I had it for about a month and a half, I think. I had a pretty bad infection from having the subdurals in for that long, Mm -hmm. because I was sitting there with them in with the gauze turban. um, And they don't really change your dressing. So yeah, it's a long time to sit there with with that. So I did get... I can't remember what kind of infection it was, but infection. Anyways, after the pick line, I was supposedly good to go. <laughs> uh, we went to Florida with Ted's parents. I think it was just around New Year's, like in January. And I noticed when we were there that it, I was starting to notice that it wasn't healing. Um, I had, it was more just a wound right on the top of my head. And uh, it was really itchy and kind of soft. And it was just taking a really long time to heal. And, but I didn't have any signs of infection. Like I didn't have a fever or any of the things that usually go along with being like that, having that serious of an infection. So I called the neuro, uh, the neurosurgeon, his office when we got back. Um, and his secretary said, we can't get you in, go see your family doctor first and they have to refer you in to see us. Um, so I went to my family doctor and they did a little bit of a, they pulled some of the fluid out of it um, and tested it and it was infected. So he gave me oral antibiotics, but that was not enough <laughs> and it did not heal. Um, and so I called the surgeon again and I was like, listen, I need to get in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the same time, my family doctor wrote a letter to the surgeon's office and said, this is what we found. Um, it's infected whatever. So I finally got in to see him, uh, which was in February, 2012, uh, middle of February. And he took one look at it and just said, shit. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. so I was super calm when he was, (laughs) how confronting is that? It was so weird. I was like super calm and I could tell he was angry. Like, he was like, you should have gotten in here before. He wasn't angry at me. He was angry at the process. Yeah. Like, there's some... Which I understand they have these processes in place for a reason. Mm -hmm. But he said, you should have been able to get in right away. Like, but the thing is, I didn't know how serious it was. Because I had no other symptoms other than just it wasn't healing. Mm -hmm. So he... Yeah. He was like, well, we're going to have to remove your bone flap. Um, we're going to have to do surgery. So we're admitting, I'm admitting you to the hospital and I, I held it together. I don't know. I, I was like scary calm about it when he was talking to me. And then Ted and I went down to, I said, well, I want to call my parents, um, and give them an update. 
Um, so we went down to the cafeteria of the hospital and I just like ball, I like lost it because it was February. We were getting married in August and I was just like, they're going to have to shave my head again. Mm. Um, my hair was just starting to grow back. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so, and it, and it wasn't even that they'd have to shave my head again. It was that they were going to take out this bone flap and then I had to wait another however many months and then I was going to have another surgery which was like a month before our wedding so <laughs> I that knew was that prosthetic. Uh, yeah for the prosthetic so I knew that down the road it wasn't just one surgery that I was going to have two mm-hmm. um so because he had explained this to me so anyways I, t- I told Ted I was like I need clean underwear if I'm gonna <laughs> if I'm gonna be admitted to the hospital. <laughs> right. <laughs> Priorities here. Yeah. So I made him go to Aerie and buy me. <laughs> He's underwear. a good man. He's a good man. Because <laughs> I didn't have anything with me. We were just coming to London for the day. Yeah. And I didn't have anything with me. And I was like, and then he w- said, "Well, I'll drive. I'll drive back to Toronto and pick up some clothes and stuff." But I said, you're going to have to stay overnight because by that time it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I was like, just stay in Toronto overnight and come back in the morning. Uh, just get me clean after. <laughs> so I called my mom and she came right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in Halliburton, so she had to drive quite far. Um, but she came and so I had my surgery the next day, Valentine's Day. Um, they removed the bone flap and that was a super weird experience because... When they sewed me back up, I had, like, this indent in my head that was, like, pulsing from my brain. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> brain. Yeah. It was a soft spot. Uh, they wanted me to wear a helmet, and I refused. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have, because I'm very accident-prone. Um, but <laughs> I did. And then, yeah, so that healed. And while they, when they took the bone flap out, he explained to me that they were going to make a mold of it. Um, so it's kind of like getting a mold made for your mouth, I guess. Um, they make a mold and then they make the prosthetic to, uh, be exactly like the bone flap that they're replacing. And it's like a resin, a clear resin kind of material. So yeah, they sent that away and it took a while. Um, and then the, the surgery was scheduled for July. So they had completely removed the bone flap itself. Yes. Cleaned you all out. Yeah. Closed it back up. Yeah, cleaned up all the infection. Right. And you didn't have any up. issues between that and then getting the prosthetic put in. I did have to go on the pick line again for, I'm not sure how long it was, but I had to go on the pick line again for a while. Um, and I had, I remember uh, we went wedding dress shopping while I was on the pick line. Oh my God. And uh, my mom, my mom came with me. I didn't want a lot of people with me when I was wedding dress shopping because it, to me, it was just like, I wasn't in the mood to make this like one of those moments. I just wanted to get it done. Mm-hmm. Like it was more utilitarian. <laughs> Let's go in there and get this and get out. Um, Cause I didn't, I, I didn't want to be in there with the pick line and yeah, it still was pretty magical <laughs> despite all that. Oh. Uh, but we had to weave it in and out of all the wedding dresses. <laughs> How many did you try on? Uh, I think um, maybe Mm-hmm. 10 to 15 mm-hmm. maybe it's so weird when when you're buying a wedding dress you have this picture in your mind of what you want and you always end up with something I shouldn't say always but I think like 9 out of 10 brides that I've talked to end up with something totally different Completely than what, different. what yeah. they had imagined their wedding dress to be yeah. so yeah 
Mine was totally different. And actually the one that was the most flattering on me was totally different. Like not even my style. Hmm. Um, and I just refused because I was like, I can't get married in a barn in that wedding dress. It would look ridiculous. <laughs> it's was it too, too much? Too, too posh. Too oh, posh okay. for a barn. It was like, yeah. Had this giant bow on it. Oh my God. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I went back in in July. Mm-hmm. for the implant surgery of the prosthetic. Um, it was supposed to be like a one day in the next day out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so they put the prosthetic in and then um, the next day they were just waiting for the bleeding to stop and then they were going to let me go home. And it it was slowing down but it wasn't stopping. And I was feeling more and more woozy, I would say, like kind of dizzy and tired and... Uh, and finally the neurosurgeon came in and he was like, lift your arms up, both your arms level. So I did. And then my right arm just slowly started dropping and he was like, oh, you have a brain bleed. Um, we're going to have to release the pressure. I don't know if I'm exaggerating when I say this, but basically he looked at Ted, who was in the room at the time, and he was like, are you like squeamish at all? And Ted said, no, my no- mom's a nurse. I'm good. So he's like, okay, hand me that uh, bucket of iodine over there. And he basically took the iodine, poured it on my head, took a scalpel and made a cut and all this blood just started flowing out. And instantly I felt a million times better. Wow. It was just like the pressure building up in there. Um, And then he was like, okay, now raise both your arms and I could raise them fine. Um, That's incredible. But he did this all as I was in the patient room. (laughs) (laughs) just like a regular patient room and I was like well this is bizarre anyway and then he's like okay we're gonna have to book an emergency OR uh so he made a call or something and he's like Ted can you help me wheel this bed out into the hallway (laughs) this was the best um so the two of them are trying to like maneuver this bed it has like those weird things that like the brakes or something they couldn't figure out how to like disengage the brakes I don't know. It was a mess. They, they finally figured it out and they're pushing me out of the room and they hit the door jam. Oh. I'm pretty sure a piece broke off the corner of the bed. Like they were just like oh all over the place. <laughs> um, and I was kind of just laughing this whole time. Yeah. Um, and they wheeled me out into the hall and then I had the surgery. They had just nicked something. Yeah. It's crazy when you think about how, how much can go wrong during surgery. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, they had just nicked something. So... They stopped the bleed and stitched me back up, and I'm pretty sure I left the next day. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that is that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's a long... So you've been completely seizure-free since the tumor was removed? Yes. Yeah. Um, so eight eight years seizure-free? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it really um, is. Yeah. And yeah. so what has life been like, you know, after that, um, life after surgeries, you know, do you yeah. still fear that you could have one? Is, is it guaranteed that you're not going to have one? No. So the neuro neurologist, um, the one who has no sense of humor, um, <laughs> he didn't even want me to get the surgery. He said, basically, you know, you have a pretty decent standard of living and you should just stay at this. He said, you don't, you don't need surgery. And then the neurosurgeon on the other side of me was like, oh, yeah, we can do this. <laughs> no yeah. problem. Yeah. Had um, you ever questioned getting the surgery? I didn't really. I I think I just, yeah, it was just a given. I was like, if this is a possibility, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really second guess it. 
I was scared, definitely, but I never really second-guessed my decision. And so since then, the first year after I had the surgery was kind of tough. I had really bad headaches, and I was having phantom seizures, so I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking I was having a seizure Mm -hmm. and wake Ted up, and he was like, you're fine, it's okay. Just to Um, reassure you. Yeah, so that happened for a while. I started seeing an osteopath. Um, I tried a bunch of different things uh, to calm myself down. I tried natural remedies um, like GABA and um, uh, magnesium, which Mm -hmm. I I still take magnesium, to kind of help with the anxiety. But the anxiety got really bad. I was having panic attacks, which I thought were seizures (laughs) because they feel very similar. When you have a seizure, your heart starts racing and uh, your breath is short and really fast and so it's very similar to a panic attack Mm -hmm. um the way it starts anyway so yeah I was having panic attacks anxiety and physical symptoms from anxiety which I didn't know was a thing (laughs) so I was having like uh facial spasms Hmm. um mostly that was the main thing and these just I don't know anybody who's dealt with anxiety will tell you that unless you've had it you can't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met a lot of people who talk about mental health and they're like, oh yeah, anxiety. I told—I I can totally understand. But then when, when you have to take time off of work because you're having these panic attacks, you can tell that everybody's looking at you and they're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, mental health issues, okay. Right. <laughs> and they have to understand because that's what any good human being does is as says they understand but I don't think you can really get it fully until it's happened to you mm-hmm. um and it's bizarre how many physical symptoms there are to anxiety you would swear you're having a heart attack <laughs> a lot yeah. of the time and uh so I dealt with that for a while and I still deal with it regularly um but I started seeing an osteopath which was the biggest game changer for me and to try to explain what an osteopath does. Um, yeah, I can't even really explain, but if you've ever heard of cranial sacral therapy, mm-hmm. it's very similar to that for me. I think de- depending on what they're working on in your body, it can be totally different. But for me, um, she just holds on to my head and she she moves the energy in my head. Uh, basically, since my plate was put in, the rivets holding my plate in place are constricting my brain movement. So um, your brain has this like natural wobble <laughs> that it does, sort of. Um, and my brain does not have the freedom to move like it did before. Mm-hmm. And so it pulls and it pinches and this causes anxiety attacks and also headaches. I get, I get some bad headaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she helps to kind of just like increase the flow I guess, um, help it, uh, free it up a little bit, keep things, uh, moving. And it, it's made a huge difference. My headaches are almost none now. And my anxiety has gone from like high levels to, um, very minimal. Like if, unless I still have to watch my sleep, definitely. Mm -hmm. If I don't get a lot of sleep, that, that's a bad sign. Um, my anxiety goes up for sure. But, uh, yeah, it's been a game changer. <laughs> um, when you were taking all of this time off of work, was work supportive of it? They were amazing. I 
I don't know how many thank yous I said to them, but <laughs> they were, so I was working in Toronto for a family run company and, um, it's a small office. There's about nine of us, I believe in there. Um, and they, they do a high volume. So busy, 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 but they were just like, take the time you need to recover. I think I was off for three months. I went back, I remember, with my stitches still in um, because I was just like, I have to get out of the house. Yeah. I can't can't sit here anymore. So they let me do like part days, uh, whatever I needed, basically. And they even, I remember they paid me for more than they needed to, like in terms of uh, sick leave wow. pay. Um, they were incredible. That is, that is yeah. so supportive. Yeah. And, um, I'm still super close with them, even though I've moved to a new job now. We, I went out with them for dinner a couple weeks ago and yeah, they're just, they're an amazing team. Not just the family that owns it, but everybody that works for them. Yeah. They're such a close knit family and it's really hard to find somewhere like that to work mm-hmm. where everybody gets along so well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do miss working there a lot. <laughs> Shout out to those lovely people, it's for yeah. sure, eh? Yeah, the, the biggest thing has been anxiety and headaches that I've dealt with since. Mm-hmm. Also, we've had um, fertility issues, but whether that's related to the the surgeries or not, I don't know. Um, we've gone through the testing and it's been labeled as unexplained infertility, Mm -hmm. which I translate into, (laughs) I translate that into stress, anxiety. That's what's causing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we did look at doing, um, like IUI and IVF and that sort of thing. And I, I don't want to, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think my body could handle it, especially with the anxiety. So we're just going to keep trying. We've started looking into the idea of adoption, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we're at with that. Yeah. Um, so exciting things are coming, though, yes, no matter what, yes. which is so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I think you've shared so many incredible facts and stories and emotions with us. It's been wonderful. The high, the One of the highs for me was definitely, well, our wedding was amazing. Yeah. Um, being off the medication has been amazing. And also getting my driver's license was like oh, yeah. the biggest thing. Right. <laughs> And it sounds so silly because it's such a small thing for, I don't know. Um, but just, it's not even have, being able to drive. It's more like the sense of freedom mm-hmm. and not having to rely on everyone to chauffeur me around, not feeling like a burden yeah. to everyone. It's been incredible. Um, yeah. And I love driving. <laughs> oh, for sure. It does. There is such a freedom in it, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, blasting the music. Oh, yeah. gosh, girl. <laughs> In the beats. <laughs> I look like one of those crazy people in traffic. I'm like, oh, I'm the same. I like car dancing. Like, woo! <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much yeah, for sharing. Thank that was, you for having me. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. I have one more thing to share, if that's okay. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> um, I wanted to shout out to Katie's run. Um, Katie Woodstra is someone who grew up in Halliburton with epilepsy, and she's had a pretty brutal struggle with it. Um, and so her friends and family started Katie's Run to uh, raise money for epilepsy and promote epilepsy awareness. Um, and so things like the epilepsy unit in London wouldn't be possible without their funding um, okay. and the money that they raise for yeah. research and um, all that good stuff. And it's one of it's become it's grown so much. It's become one of the top fundraisers, I think, uh, 
in Canada, maybe North America. I don't want to get my facts wrong, mm-hmm. uh, but for epilepsy research. Cool. Um, so it, it's an annual run? Yes, it's an annual run. It's every July. Um, it used to be at the ski hill, but now it's at the high school around the track. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know uh, what weekend it is this year? It's usually the first weekend in July. July 6th this year. July 6th. Um, okay, great. Yeah, and my mom does the warm-up, the fitness warm-up before the run, yeah. and both of us volunteer every year. We're the crazy people screaming with the cowbell. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's a great time, and actually they have some pretty amazing guests this year. Anthony Farnell, the, yeah. the weather guy with Storm the Weather Dog, they yeah. come and he's uh, MCs the whole thing. Awesome. Um, and then they have Miss Canada coming this year. I didn't know we had a Miss Canada. I didn't either. <laughs> but we do. Okay, cool. Um, and she uh, grew up with epilepsy, so she's coming to speak which should be amazing. And they have a huge raffle, um, silent auction and stuff. They raise a lot of money. <laughs> okay, July 6th. Yep. Game on. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> thank that's, you. that's really great. That's really, really good. So there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Safe Haven Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure that you subscribe, like, and share these episodes and comment along. Comment as you follow along. Your generous support keeps the sharing and the messages coming your way. You can find the Safe Haven podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Podbean. And you can also follow along on Instagram at the Safe Haven podcast for the latest updates. I'll talk to you next week.